0: Hello, humans! Welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950, and you have me, Ellie Krug, your host. Hello, happy Sun, happy Saturday again, uh, last Saturday in February. Next month is March. Well, actually, two days from now is March. Oh, my goodness. Cannot wait. Okay, on this show, you know, we talk about idealists, about people who... Um, In the past who are idealists, better yet, people today who are seeking to change the world for the better. And my friends, uh, in this world of ours, we desperately need positive change. You will really like the big interview this week. I have a young idealist working to support rural communities and small towns in Minnesota and across America. You will. Her idealism, her spirit is infectious. And so get ready for that. And in my C block, I'm going to talk about what's happening to transgender people in the community. Yes, I know. I talk about that with great frequency, but boy, let me just tell you, um, I have to talk about it again. But let me begin with a story of an idealist, a Japanese diplomat um, uh, who um, did something in the early months of World War II. Um, and I'm, I'm going to guess that many of you um, don't have never heard this story, Um, and I'm going to guess like many of you, um, you're going to be surprised. So many of us are aware of how hundreds of thousands of Jews, if not millions, desperately tried to escape Nazi persecution by leaving their countries and heading west toward England. Well, first to France and then then to England and then on to America or, or Canada. So they, that migration, that, that fleeing westward, I'm well familiar with. But what I did not know until researching for today, that thousands of Jews, tens of thousands of Jews fled east to Japan and then to other countries beyond. Um, and for Jews living in Lithuania, okay, which borders on the Baltic, one of the three Baltic states that— um, uh, currently um, is free of communi- uh, uh, communist domination now, post-Gorbachev and post-Reagan, uh, that for Jews living in Lithuania back in the 1930s, um, their escape eastward, not westward, eastward, um, was made possible by a mid-level Japanese diplomat named Shoshone Sugihara. Shoshone Sugihara excuse me, it's Shioni, sorry, Um, who took great risks to help people who had no other way of saving themselves and their families. Uh, Shioni Sugihara was born on January 1, 1900 in Kochi-Atyu, Japan. I am murdering words here. So uh, Shioni's father wanted him to be a doctor but he deliberately flunked the medical exam by only writing his name on the test and not answering any questions. So early on, um, Shioni was a was a rebel. Shioni's, uh, um he loved to learn about other places and learning about other cultures and languages. And eventually he became fluent in English, Russian and German. And in his early 20s, he entered the Japanese foreign ministry and was posted to Manchuria, where he worked to negotiate building the Northern Manchurian Railroad with the Soviet Union. So he's a diplomat. He also married a Russian woman, and then he converted, this Japanese man converted to Christianity. However, in 1935, Shione resigned his post in Manchuria because of how the Japanese um, we're, mis- we're mistreating local Chinese. So again, the rebel shows up. The idealistic rebel shows up. He's working his way through the Japanese you know, diplomatic corps. He's on his way, okay? And then he resigns his post because he does not like how his country was treating the Chinese. Um, he was a man willing to throw it all away to protest how humans were being marginalized by his own country. Um, The resignation did not um, sink him, though, um, because Shioni ultimately became the vice council of the Japanese consulate in uh, uh, Kanzu, Kanuz, Kanuz, Lithuania. So he's posted in a large city in Lithuania, Kanuz. At the time in Lithuania, Jews made up a third of the country's urban population and half of the residents of every town. So there were a lot of Jews in Lithuania. In September 1939, Germany invades Poland, and World War II begins in Europe. In June of 1940, the Soviet Union occupied Lithuania, and Jews in the country knew that it had come time for them to leave, okay? They could see the clock was ticking. And of course, to leave any country and to travel to another, you usually need visas, visas. And the question was, okay, which countries would issue visas to um, to Jews who most certainly would become refugees, okay? It's not like they'd get a visa and be able to go back to Lithuania. So who would ever issue them a visa because ultimately they might end up being, having, being forced to stay in the country that issued the, the, the visa. In Lithuania, the Dutch were willing to do that with documents to... Uh, 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 Curaçao, a a Caribbean island and Dutch colony. And so a a couple thousand Jews went there courtesy of the Dutch government trying to help them get out of Lithuania. Soon our idealist, Shioni, began getting uh, requests from Jewish families to travel to Japan. Um, And then once in Japan, uh, hopefully they'd be able to go on to other countries like China or other Pacific Rim countries or maybe even to the U.S., in, in essence, again, this was an eastern escape route, not to the west, to the east. But many Jewish immigrants didn't have visas beyond Japan. There would be refugees in Japan, but at least they would be safe. Japan did not participate in the final solution, Holocaust activities against Jews, although um, the Japanese of that era were not kind at all to Koreans and the Chinese. Shioni... Um, contacted the Japanese foreign ministry about what to do because he was getting all these requests for visas from Lithuanian Jews. He went to the foreign ministry three times, and three times the foreign ministry said, do not grant visas to anybody who doesn't have a visa to go beyond Japan. Our hero, Shioni, our rebel, ignored those instructions. And for a period of five weeks, from July 18 to August 28, 1940, Shioni wrote thousands of handwritten visas with the consular stamp, the Japanese consular stamp. Um, and by some accounts, he did that writing 18 to 20 hours a day for those five weeks, producing a normal month's number of visas in every day. Um, as he was even being evacuated because the Japanese embassy needed to be evacuated towards the end of August of 1940, as he was being evacuated, Shioni was writing the visas and throwing them out the window of the train as it was heading out of the station because Jews had come to the station begging him for visas. Um, uh, uh, and, And so... Uh, Shioni's, uh, it's estimated that through Shioni's actions, somewhere between 4,500 and 6,000 Jews were saved by Shioni's visas, with descendants from those families that translates out to maybe 100,000 people who can account for being alive because of Shioni's bravery. If you go to Wikipedia and you, and you Google um, Shioni, you're going to see a list of prominent Jews, like living now, Okay. Well, post-1945, we we'll ordered the fact to uh, being alive because of Shioni's visas. Uh, the Japanese ministry never caught on. Eventually, Shioni was assigned to Romania. Eventually, the, the Russians, the Soviets came in, occupied Romania. Shioni became a POW. After the war, he was no longer with the Japanese foreign ministry, and after the war, he went, lived in obscurity at one point selling light bulbs to support his family. But in 1968, an Israeli diplomat um, posted to Japan who was a teenager back in Lithuania who was a beneficiary of one of Shioni's visas, found Shioni. And from there, the story got to Israel and then to Lithuania where Shioni was ultimately honored. Let me close this out with a quote from Shione, explaining why he wrote those thousands of visas, saving so many people. And you're going to hear the emotion in my voice because the quote is so eloquent. Quote, you want to know about my motivation, don't you? Well, it is the kind of sentiments anyone would have when he actually sees refugees face to face, begging with tears in their eyes. He just cannot help but sympathize with them. Among the refugees were the elderly and women. They were so desperate that they went so far as to kiss my shoes. Yes, I actually witnessed such scenes with my eyes. And I felt at that time that the Japanese government did not have any uniform opinion in Tokyo. Some Japanese military leaders were just scared because of the pressure from the Nazis, while other officials in the home ministry were simply ambivalent. People in Tokyo were not united. I felt it silly to deal with them, so I made up my mind not to wait for their reply. I knew that somebody would surely complain about me in the future, but I myself thought this would be the right thing to do. There is nothing wrong in saving many people's lives. The spirit of humanity, philanthropy, neighborly friendship with this spirit i ventured to do what i did confronting this most difficult situation and because of this reason i went ahead with redoubled courage <sighs> shioni sugahara idealist someone who changed the world for the better when we come back I'm going to talk to an idealist who's doing just that now in real time you're listening to me Ellie Krug Ellie 2.0 Radio I sure hope you like this show because I put a lot of time into it we'll be back in a second thanks I wanna do the and we're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio with your lovely Ellie Krug here. Okay, um... So, um, time for the big interview. And I have an idealist who you're going to like. Benya Krause is the, I think, executive director, I think we can say that, for Lead for Minnesota. And I have her on the line here. Benya, are you there?
1: I am. Hello. Good to
0: be here. Well, welcome to LE 2.0 uh, Radio. And um, did I get your title ag- accurate? Are you the Executive Director of Lead for Minnesota? I am. Yep.
1: And I'm oh, one of the co-founders of Lead for America. So that, that's our our national organization. Okay. Yep.
0: That was going to come next. Okay. Great. Thank you for that, <laughs> Benya. Um, I, you know, you're also a writer for Minnesota Women's Press, and mm-hmm. uh, you have a piece. That appeared in this week's uh, online version of Minnesota Women's Press, which is about caring for communities, you know, caring for like sometimes older buildings in communities. And that is what got my attention, because you are in greater Minnesota, not only working to care for buildings, but you're working to care for communities. Do I have that right?
1: <laughs> yes. yep, that's right.
0: Okay. All right. And let's put it on top. You're a young human, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, but yeah. long as <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> okay. Well,
0: what? You're 25. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. That's in my book, Very Young Human. So, all right. Let's get started. Other than laughing and giggling, tell us what uh, um, Lead for Minnesota is because I am positive that most of my audience has no idea. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So Lead for Minnesota, we are a state affiliate of a national organization, Lead for America. uh, And our mission is to ensure really that our most dynamic, diverse young people are working on their community's toughest challenges, especially in places where the narrative of success so often means leaving and not coming back. Uh, So to that end, we support young homecomers, uh, people who are returning to their rural and tribal homelands or economically distressed urban neighborhoods, and are working on things that, you know, we say are their magic wand challenges. You know, if a community had a magic wand to significantly transform their place into a community that would attract and retain young talent that would be prepared to handle the challenges of the next generation, uh, those challenges are what fellows, um, or are, you know, the homecomers we support are tackling and gives them a purpose to, to see themselves coming back to a place maybe where, you know, they grew up thinking that the only thing that they could do was get out.
0: Well, give us, can you give us an example of this? I mean, uh, I'm going to get to you. I mean, you're, you're like walking the walk, talking the talk. I mean, you're in, you're in Wasika, Okay. <laughs> Which is not, you know, in are 25 years old, it's not an you know, what we would call an urban hub, but other, we'll get to that in a second, but give us an example of one of the, one of the, uh, homecomers, which is a great phrase that you've worked with mm. that's gone back to a smaller town, smaller community. And what, what have they done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So to, to frame it up, we, we offer a two-year paid fellowship that brings recent college grads back to their hometowns. And so in that hometown fellowship, uh, I, two stories come, come to mind right away. Um, on the national side, we've helped, uh, uh, Shondine Herrera return back to her home reservation in Monument Valley, Utah as part of the Navajo Nation. And, uh, she's now wrapping up into her second year of the fellowship. And when COVID broke out, she and a group of Native women, uh, ended up just fundraising over $10 million and redistributing food and PPE to the entire Navajo nation. Holy cow. Um,
0: <laughs> $10 yeah. million. Dollars.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: Yep.
1: And, and we've had Evan Bonsall as well, return to his hometown of Marquette, Michigan, and is now actually the youngest ever elected city commissioner for Marquette and kind of really was part of uh, the team that stewarded uh, um I, I'm gonna get this wrong, but I just think it sounds very cool. A a space station uh and made Marquette on the map working uh uh to develop a space station in, in, you know, this small town of Marquette, Michigan. So he's been working on housing, space station stuff, um and and also is has is now, you know, a leading voice in the community on the city commission.
0: And I I'm assuming that both uh Shundeen and Evan are in their twenties, yes?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So younger than me, they're the ripe, right ripe
0: age of 22. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, and so it's, and and you can just tell from how you're describing this, that you are so excited about this. Now, we also need to let the listeners know, this is not like something that's been around for decades. You were as recently as what, um, three years ago, four years ago, a student at Tufts mm. university in Boston. Yeah. That's all, all set to go work at a law firm. Um, you've gotten a degree in international relations, but you're all set to go work at a law firm to at least start paying the bills. And then mm. one of your uh, college classmates or somebody came up, uh, came to mm-hmm. you and said, I have this idea for how to transform communities by keeping younger people there. Do I have that mm-hmm. right? hmm
1: Yeah, I I got a two pager from a guy named Joe Nail uh, <laughs> from Kansas, um, and at that point, I had signed on with a, uh, a actually a two year fellowship at the corporate law firm. Not necessarily because that's actually what I wanted to do. I I don't actually think I had a very deep interest in it, but um, it just seemed you know that that was you know what young success successful uh, people from my school would end up doing. So. Uh, I got this two-pager that was the butt of an idea uh, of a two-year fellowship to go actually back to your hometown. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, this would have been the thing that would have gotten me home. Uh, and it just felt so serendipitous that, uh, of, uh, that, that, you know, this two-pager was speaking to my own personal experience in such a profound way that uh, I ended up, you know, jumping ship and, and, <laughs> uh, with just a dream really in my pocket, <laughs> um, uh, uh, to start lead for America with this
0: team. All right. So it's, it was just a two page document with ideas and kind yeah. of a, you know, kitchen table plan of how to mm-hmm. launch this new organization. So this is what two years ago. Is that what you said?
1: Three years ago, three, yes. in, okay. in 2018.
0: All right. So in three years ago, you co-found Lead for America with a number of other young idealists. Mm-hmm. You've got barely a budget, you know, because you're just starting out the, off the ground. But you yeah. told me uh, your budget for what, 2020 or was it 2021, is $2 million. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, that that was actually after our first year. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, first year. <laughs> so, so, it's grown a little bit beyond that.
0: But <laughs> all right, to, okay. So you go from zero to two million dollars in a year's time with this organization that simply existed on paper in 2018, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay, Benya, we're going to have to take a break, but when we come back, I want we want I want to hear more about your story, more about. Um, Uh, lead for Minnesota, lead for America. Okay? Great. Sounds good. All right, listeners, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2 Part L Radio, bringing you wonderful idealists with stories that will grab you just like we're hearing now. Um, If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. I'm also an idealist, you know that. Um, Email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. I love hearing from my listeners. When we come back, we'll talk more to Benya Krause about her idealism. (laughs) We're back. Ellie 2.0 radio. You've got me, Ellie Krug on AM 950. All right. Before we took our break, we were t- speaking with Benya Kraus, who is the co-founder of uh, lead for America and the executive director of lead for Minnesota. She's based in Wasika, She is 25 years old. And, um, and, uh, three years ago, she took a leap of faith gave up a nice fellowship with a law firm in Boston so she could go and respond to a two-page set of ideas. And from that, they've gone, she and her colleagues have created this organization that has now a budget in the millions of dollars. Benya, tell us a little bit about your story, okay? Because your story is pretty unique. Um, you, uh, uh, you live in Waske, Wasika right now, but you have a very strong connection to Thailand. And could you explain mm. that, please?
1: Yeah, so I say own the split between Bangkok, Thailand, and Wasika, Minnesota. Uh, my dad grew up as one of nine on our family farm. It's now in its sixth generation of, of farm stewardship, and my mom also grew up uh, in an ag-based background. So uh, she grew up in northern Thailand in Chiang Mai. Um, and I was born in Bangkok uh, for some miraculous reason. My, my parents uh, met each other halfway across the world and, and had me in Thailand. And um, and my dad did a lot of public health work, so we actually moved around quite a bit. But every summer and winter uh, growing up was back home on my family's farm in Wasika. <laughs>
0: Okay, and um, and uh, and again, uh, l- allow me to just ask this: You identify yourself as a person of color, yes? Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay, and so um, I've got to imagine you growing up on the farm, you know, coming back for the summers in Wasika, and you being in Wasika um, was quite some culture shock compared to you know growing. I mean, you told me um, to prepare. You spent some time in New Jersey growing up. Um, mm. but then um, then you went back to live in Thailand for your high school years. Mm. Do I have that right? Yep, that's right. Okay, so talk to us about how all of that, you know, that kind of cultural background, as well as tied in to, to the land, okay? Mm. Tell us about that. How did that shape you?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think I grew up very attached to transience, you know i went to school out in boston to study international relations and i thought i was going to be moving every two to three years um being mixed race i often say that there's a lot of cross-cultural translation that happens at every dinner <laughs> uh and and i i think i was very fixated at growing up and, and continuing now of, of this question of just like who am i Um, and, and what are places or people where I can be the fullness of, of myself. And, and so coming back, you know, on, on summers on the farm, um, there were parts where, you know, I, I, I was the only person of color, um, you know, in my extended family, uh, and, and, you know, now, uh one of the, you know, it's it's a, it's a still a small demographic in Waseca. It's growing. And, and, and I <laughs> really want people to know that there are indeed people of color in greater Minnesota. Um, yep, but yep. yeah, but I, I, think I, I had a lot of that piece of like, who am I? Um, and, and for a while growing up, I definitely did not think Waseca, Minnesota was part of that. Who am I question? It was a place that I loved hanging out with my cousins and, and loved playing on the farm, but, Uh, You know, when I thought about what I wanted to do with my life, I thought I was going to be moving to these big cosmopolitan places because that's where the action was happening. That's where the excitement was. And if you wanted to be at the forefront of some of the major innovation and challenges our country and our our world is facing, I, I thought I needed to be doing it at the largest level and be doing it in cities. And I think I carried that with me really until, you know, a family situation in my junior year of college brought me back. And I diverted or, um, you know, delayed an internship in D.C. to spend a few weeks back with my family in Wasika and was just totally reintroduced hmm. to this place. You know, there, there were actually pockets of entrepreneurship and diversity. And we there was a Vision 2030 document that had some really bold goals of where we needed to be heading. Um, but at the crux of that document was saying we cannot achieve any of these goals Unless we find a way to attract and retain our young people and make sure that they are seeing purpose and possibility in how they can be part of crafting 2030.
0: So let me, let me, I just love listening to you. I'm sorry, Benya, yeah, I do. I just, I just, you are, there's something in your voice that translates to hope. Okay. So hold on, hold on. Although um, I, I start saying those words and I start getting emotional. Now here's, let me throw this at you. Okay. We, what, what did we hear in the 2016 election and then the 2020 elections, but what did we hear about people in flyover America feeling as if they do not matter, right? feeling separated from the rest of the country. And of course that we don't need to get into politics, but boy, you start, you know, if you feel like you're separated, you want to latch on to somebody that says, "Ah, don't worry, I got you protected. Okay. Which we don't need to go down that road, but what you're doing is you are, you're, you're changing the whole conversation and you're shifting the focus away from big, you know, urban whatever and you're bringing people back who 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 are are idealistic, who want to make a difference, who want to make a change. You are helping that happen. And in the process, I've got to think, Benya, you're going to give people a you know, you're going to make them feel that they do matter now. I mean, this is a huge idea that you guys are are putting forward you young humans are putting forward
1: <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I I feel very strongly that a placeless people cannot sustain a democracy <laughs> because the whole na- notion of a democracy is that we need to come together to understand and get creative about what needs what, what's our contract, our social contract together about how we care for our places and how we care for the people in them. And I think the notion of democracy requires us to understand what that care of place is because we are doing it every day in our local communities. And through understanding your, your love for your own place, I think it gives us tools to then understand how we might love other places uh, as if they were our own because that's what we hope that others would do would feel about ours. Right. So I think, you know, our country right now is is I think there's pockets of a lot of placeless people and that is both in urban places and rural places. But I I feel like I can be a better person and do exciting entrepreneurial things and create and be imaginative because every day I get to wake up in a small town where I know my neighbors, we are on committees together. I run into, you know, I can't upset one person in one committee meeting in in a way that disrespects the the dignity of who they are because I know I'm going to see them at the grocery store. And I know that they probably, you know, part of their lineage probably knows my grandparents, you know. And, And so I think that, proximity and accountability to one another is so important in helping us think about how how do we learn to live together and and, you know this notion of hope um yeah i we i have just the blessing of getting to work with young people who see the possibility in places where mainstream media and greater society would tell them that that this place is hopeless that that the only thing you can do is get out and I think if we keep sharing that or if we keep pushing that narrative, we won't nationally be able to sustain a democracy. Cause the thing is there are people in these places and there is inherent worth in them because there's also inherent worth in people. And I, 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 <laughs> I think the only way we can learn to care for each other collectively as a country is if we first look to, you know, we say in lead for America, let's start where we live. Um, and, and, and that's what I hope our organization and, and what I try to do as well of, of why I care about my place um, and, and why I see possibility in these places because if it's not us, then who who will it be?
0: Benya, yeah. <laughs> oh, you are making my heart burst, okay? And I'm going to quote you, by the way, a, a placeless people cannot sustain a democracy. That You said that. It is a wonderful quote. It really is. And you are so right. We have lost our connection to things. We have lost our connection to each other. We have, I mean, your story about the grocery store and, and, and knowing that you gotta, you've got to be respectful. It, maybe you'll disagree, but you'll have to be dis, you, be, you have to be respectful because you're going to run into your neighbor in the grocery store. <laughs> but we, So we have to be connected to each other, and then we do have to be connected to the land because when we're connected to the land, we will care for it. It will nurture us. If we trash the land... It will not. So we have two minutes left. Benya, um, what else would you like my listeners to know about lead for Minnesota or lead for America or about you?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I guess I would say, you know, Ellie, you and I were talking about, you know, why, where do I find hope or why am I an idealist? And, and, you know, my, I, it was hard to answer that at first because I think my instinct was, well, what else would we do? What, what else would we be? But, you know, I, we talked a bit about this reinvestment of ourselves, of our gifts into place and, and, and into its people. And when I think of, you know, the fact that my family has stewarded six generations of farmland, um, there is a look to the future and there's, and there's a, a piece of, you know what i hear in my family is that this land is actually not ours we are farming for the next generation and we also have to wrestle with the complicated histories of being also you know knowing that our land uh, also is dakota land as well um and and the history of of stewardship that has been here before us but i think this notion of thinking both generations behind us and forward uh makes this idea of of course we need to reinvest into our places um there is, I think. I think hope is just found in thinking of all the gifts that I have just been blessed and given, and and the love that I have been given when there was no reason for people to love me, and the fact that they did is is all the fuel that I need. Of saying these gifts that I've been given uh, from past generations, it's now my job to think about how do I use those gifts not for myself but for the next generation of Wasika of, of my family's farmland of, of Minnesota and and of our nation more broadly. Um, I I hope listeners here can just maybe reflect on that. What gifts have I been given that maybe I didn't deserve, but now have this opportunity to pay it forward or to spread it, um, in a way that also sparks hope and gives gifts to the next generation.
0: All right. Well, Benya, wow. I, I want you to know Anything I can ever do to help you, okay, and your organization, I'm here for you, all right? I just want you to know that, okay? And thank if, you. And if listeners want to find out more, all they have to do is Google Lead for, for Minnesota or Lead for America, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Okay. All right, well, Benya, I could talk with you all day, but unfortunately, I don't have the time to do that. Um, I just <laughs> want to thank you for being on LE 2.0 Radio, but most of all, I want to thank you For being you. For being willing to come back here, okay? And to try and make a difference in the world. That is what Mm -hmm. idealists do, Benya, okay? Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me and and for your beautiful words and the way you live your life as well. Thank
0: you. All right, well, thanks. Okay, listeners, well, (laughs) um, I don't know how we top that. I really don't. But um, uh, when we come back, we'll do my C-block. I'm going to talk with you a little bit about what's going on with transgender humans in America right now and an experience I had um, recently this week. We'll be back in a second. Ellie 2.0 Radio. Ellie Krug. Um, we'll be back. Thanks. Thanks. We're back, LA 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Okay, Benya Kraus, please go and check out Lead for Minnesota, Lead for America. Please do that, okay? And tell others about it. We need... I, 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 I don't even get me started on how inspired I am right at this moment because of listening to Benya. Okay? All right, we're in my C block here. Uh, where I talk about uh, my work as an idealist or stuff that's important to me. I need to, again, focus on what's happening to transgender people in America. I am so sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'm not at all. Somebody needs to be talking about this regularly. And it should be a transgender person like me who has this huge platform (laughs) that I do. Yesterday... Uh, Excuse me. On Thursday, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Equality Act, um, not by a large margin, uh, 224 to 206. um, Only three Republicans crossed uh, party lines horrible. I mean, we're talking the Equality Act about making it equal for LGBTQ people in America so they don't get kicked out of their apartments, so they don't, you know, so they don't get kicked out of their health care, they don't kicked off, get kicked off car insurance, okay? This was great news, the Equality Act passed, but before the vote, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a uh, name I know most of my listeners know, spoke out in opposition to the Equality Act making baseless statements that totally marginalized transgender humans. And that came on the heels of Taylor Greene posting a sign outside her office that said, quote, there are two genders, male and female, trust the science, unquote. That sign is on a wall facing the office of Illinois Representative Marie Newman, who has a uh, transgender daughter. Who who also spoke before the vote for the Equality Act talked about the need for to support her child, who she called the bravest human that she knew. Okay, that flag she's got outside of her office the, the flag for transgender people, which is a pink and blue flag. Um, okay, and just yesterday, uh, uh, Rachel Levine, Dr. Rachel Levine, who's who is up for nomination as the Asi- Assistant Secretary of Secretary of Health and Development or Health and whatever it is. Um, Just yesterday, Rand Paul started attacking Rachel Levine about being transgender and making baseless claims about transgender people. All of this marginalization takes its toll on transgender humans. This is our government after all. And you're hearing people elected people. If you are transgender, you are hearing them say things about you that are, total lies, okay, that feed in to ignorance of other people and feed into the risk of transgender people being murdered. There are already, I believe, eight or nine transgender people who have been murdered this year because they're transgender. I now need to pivot, though, more recently to speaking with a teenage transgender girl. Um, She's uh, in a shelter um, the shelter contacted me and said, "Ellie, will you will you talk to this girl? Because she needs someone, and she's never really spoken to a transgender person before. And she is in the shelter because her parents refuse to accept who she truly is. Their words and actions, which included spitting on this transgender girl and hitting her, have caused this wonderful young human to be depressed and to hate herself. And so we had a Zoom yesterday." And it was a long, good talk about how humans, like us, transgender people, aren't this way because we chose it, but simply were this way because that is how we were made. And I praised her for being brave and for being smart, and I told her that many people cared about her. But still it was very clear. As I spoke to her of how the trauma, both personal in her family as well as society at large, how the trauma was pulling her down. As I've told you before, in this legislative season, nearly half the states in America have tried to enact legislation against transgender people, particularly transgender youth like this transgender girl that I spoke to. Bills to prevent transgender people from participating in sports um, or, or, or wanting to send doctors and nurses and therapists to jail for treating transgender teens like the person I talked to yesterday. I cannot imagine that they would not be able to be able to to get the help they needed. But there are states that want to cut all of that out from transgender youth. All for political theater and to fundraise off. Words have consequences. We are literally losing humans because of words ground in hatred and ignorance. If you have a younger transgender human that you in your life that you think would benefit from talking to someone else who's learned much about life via transitioning genders, reach out to me. Ellie Krug. Ellie Krug at EllieJKrug at gmail.com. I've got to go. Big thanks to my producer, Patrick. Big thanks to you, my listeners. I hope that you have liked this show. I try my best to bring you something unique and something to grab your hearts, to inspire you. Something to give you hope Because we need that so desperately right now. Go out and do good. I'll be back next week. Thanks.